well as our uh, other campuses and venues join us our, for our time in the Word. Would you all bow with me and let's pray. Father God, uh, there's a lot going on in our country right now that uh, concerns a lot of us. Uh, we think of what happened in Pittsburgh yesterday with the synagogue and we want to pray for our Jewish friends there that your comfort and your healing even immediately now would be upon them as they uh, deal with this tragedy and the craziness going on in our culture right now. And Lord, as we think about all that's going on in our culture right now, some of us, especially I know myself, we think very much of how the gospel truly is the hope of this world and the hope of our souls. And so, Father, as we talk today right now about your gospel and this thing called missions and what it really means and how it affects even us here in the 21st century living in the Phoenix area, God, I pray that you would inspire us, teach us uh, more than anything, Lord, get us in line, get us on board with what you're doing on planet Earth so that we can be part of the solution, never a part of the problem. And so, God, speak to us now, I pray, through your word, and I pray this in Christ's name, and we all say together... Amen. So I want you to imagine with me today that you personally, I want you to personalize this for yourself, that you personally have discovered a surefire cure for cancer. You, where you sit right now, Cactus Venue and Chapel, where you are right now, you've discovered a cure for cancer. And it's a treatment that will work for all types of cancer at the cellular level. Anyone, anywhere who has cancer can now deal with it and find a cure. And you discovered it. You are the holder of its secrets. And to add more texture to this, you didn't see this discovery coming. I mean, you're not a doctor. You're not a part of the research community. You're not an expert at all in this field. It's just that one day you had a vision that seemed to come out of nowhere, probably divine in origin, and you just know that it's going to work. Now, realizing that this will be a really hard sell and that you will need to convince the medical community and the FDA and others that this is safe and will work, you decide you're going to start small and local. So you find a few of your friends that are struggling with cancer and you give them this cure that you know will work and, and to their shock but indescribable joy, they are free from all symptoms and any signs of disease. And so at this point, with a good track record, you decide to expand just a little bit and you move to a more regional approach to this cure. You find some people in the oncology ward at, say, Honor Health or Mayo, and you discreetly slip them the cure, and once again, right on cue, it works, and it's joy indescribable. Now, it's at this juncture with you holding this cure that you are at a very serious crossroad where you can turn either right or left in your journey. Uh, you could inform the experts and the FDA about all of this, but knowing how careful and methodical these groups are, combined with the fact that you're not an expert or a researcher yourself, and that they probably won't believe that you're a holder of such a cure, you decide that this is a risky course of action. You decide rightly so that this could create more trouble than not. 
So the other option is for you to find a few other non-medical, non-experts who share this same belief in the cure, train them how to administer it properly, and let them be your emissaries and ambassadors for getting the cure out. And so you decide to do this option. You find your disciples, you train them, you fire them up about this, and you send them out. And before you know it, what was originally a small local movement in the cure for cancer very quickly becomes a worldwide phenomenon with lots of critics and the experts all going on CNN to try to debunk this, but with only one major problem. People all around the world are being cured from cancer and the demand only continues to grow. Imagine if this was you. If you found a cure for cancer and you knew it worked because time and time again you had seen it work and you're not an expert, you're not a part of the research community, this is almost surely how you would go about it. Now, some of you have guessed why I asked you to participate in this fictitious little exercise here because here's my point. And that is that if you simply substitute the word cancer for the word gospel right now in your understanding, then you can make the transition from a fictitious little story about you discovering a cure for cancer and now understand the non-fictitious story of what happened 2,000 years ago in a little country called Israel and how it went massively global rather quickly. You see, the Bible tells us very clearly that sin is a cancer. It's not too much of a stretch. It's a cancer of the soul. It eats away at the soul. It ravages relationships. It metastasizes to the point that all of us have experienced this. It robs us of our way to find God and to know him. And in the history of the world, with all the religions that we have, nobody has ever found a cure for sin. No one until Jesus showed up on the scene. And Jesus, though a Jewish rabbi, was not accepted as part of the religious establishment back then. They didn't believe him. In fact, most of them tried everything they could to stop him. But his cure for sin, this forgiveness, this grace, this truth of the gospel based on Jesus' atonement for us, was and is unstoppable. Why? because it works. People who have tried it, who might not be experts in religion or philosophy or what have you, the uneducated of the first century, their lives were changed because God himself is in this cure that Jesus has brought. And so the mindset, don't miss this, of them back then was who cares whether or not this is approved by the first century version of the religious FDA. The gospel is the hope of our souls. It's the only cure for sin that makes such a mess of our lives. And so precisely because the experts of Jesus' day wouldn't play ball when it came to God's cure for the maladies of the soul, Jesus chose the non-experts. It's one of the most scandalous parts of the story of the Gospels is that Jesus bypassed the religious establishment. You remember who he chose to be his emissaries? Fishermen 
tax collectors, sinners of all stripes, who had found that this gospel that Jesus brought, which by the way was himself and his atonement, this gospel actually works. And so starting with a few of them at first, about 11 or 12, and then broadening locally to a few hundred, and then burgeoning rather quickly regionally to a few thousand before you knew it. This cure for the soul that Jesus brought was spreading across the world like a brush fire in the Arizona dry season. Jesus actually predicted this was going to happen. I want you to look at his very last words in the book of Acts before he's ascended into heaven. These are his part, this is his parting shot. And he says this, you shall be my witnesses, both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. <laughs> you know, people who don't know anything about the geography of the Middle East might not understand this. So let me contextualize it for you. And by the way, these, this is about exactly right. Jesus is saying that you shall be my witnesses here in Phoenix and in Black Canyon City and Flagstaff and even to the remotest parts of the earth. That would be about right given the geography of the Middle East back then. So Jesus is saying that it's going to start small, but it's going to spread fast. And it's going to spread fast through a bunch of non-experts who are going to be the handlers of this good news anywhere and everywhere they can go. Now, why do I tell you this fictitious story? Why do I make such a point of you finding a cure for cancer, relating it to the gospel, and then uh, talking about non-experts and all that being the ones to, to carry this cure? Here's the reason is that over the years, the last 2,000 years, we've developed a fancy name for this expansive endeavor. We call it missions. Missions. I got saved, as many of you know, about 35, 38 years ago. And when I first became a Christian and started hanging around church people, I, I, as I told you before, I heard them use a language that I never used before. And I started hearing this word missions all the time. Like they'd say we have a, a, a missions meeting at church and we got a, it's going to be headed up by the missions pastor who runs the missions committee. And then people said we're going to go on missions trips and we're going to see the mission Aries on this trip. And, and, and we have a missions budget. And, and you know, I had gotten saved out of secular culture back then. And, you know, the only time I ever heard the word mission was that wonderful show, Mission Impossible. Remember that? <laughs> we made it into a bunch of movies now. But before that, it was a 1970s sitcom show. And so every time I heard somebody talk about missions, I thought of that show, which is not connected in any way at all. And so it took me a while to understand what we mean by missions. And yet here's what I've observed some 35 years later. And that is that though I am now very well versed in missions, I'm your pastor for crying out loud, I find that many people, even many people who darken the doors of church on a weekly basis are hard pressed to give a cogent and clear definition or description of missions, even though we might have progressed beyond mission impossible. You see, tomorrow you're going to go to work, and, and maybe at work, I don't think this will happen, but it might, somebody might say, uh, hey, Rich, what'd you do over the weekend? And, and Rich, being a, a wonderful Christian man, I'll tell him what he did. He waxed his car, you know, did his house, and they'll say, and I went to church on Sunday. And they might say, oh, wow, what did you learn at church? Now, they're probably not going to ask that, but if they did, he would say, well, we talked about missions. 
And again, if they don't know anything about Christianity, they're going to think Tom Cruise, Mission Impossible, things like that. And Rich will now be pressed to give a very quick, cogent definition of missions. And I'm not sure every Christian could really do that. And so I want to talk today with you about missions, this methodology that Jesus gave us for getting the word out. It's the packaging for delivering the cure that he brought for our souls. And I hope to get us all on the same page in the next 30 minutes on what missions is and why it's so important, why it affects you and me today. Now, to best accomplish this, I want us to look at a passage in the Gospel of Matthew, beginning in in chapter 28, at the end of chapter 28, that are some of Jesus' final words. In fact, most experts believe that these are the second-to-last words that he gave, at least that we have recorded. The ones in Acts are the very last ones I showed you earlier. But Jesus has now been resurrected from the dead. Judas is no longer in the equation. And Jesus told the 11 disciples, there weren't all that many back then, to meet him up in Flagstaff. So again, Jerusalem's down here. Flagstaff, uh, Galilee is way up here in the mountains. And, And this is what happens. It says, now the 11 disciples went to Galilee, to the mountain to which Jesus had directed them. And when they saw Jesus, they worshiped him, but some doubted. And Jesus came and said to them, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. Now, some of you are tempted to tune out right now because I have preached on this passage before. In fact, let's just cut to the chase. I looked it up this week in my archives. I have preached on this passage six times in the 11 years that I have been your pastor. So that's about once every two years. And let's extrapolate that out. If you keep me around, you're going to hear me go to this passage once every other year. And the reason is, is because it contains the marching orders for the church. It's my favorite passage uh, when it comes to what we're to do as a church. And so if you don't like it, I'll let you know in future years when I'm going to preach on it. And you can go to Bedside Baptist that day if you want to. But, but, but this is something that we need to revisit on a regular basis. Now, I've taught you before this. I'm going to teach you one, I'm going to review one thing, and then I'm going to teach you something new. I've taught you before that the only operative verb in this passage is highlighted in yellow here. It's make disciples. As many of you know, the verb is the action of a sentence. And so the action of the sentence here in the original Greek is make disciples. There's other actions going on, like go and baptize and teach and observe. But in the Greek that the New Testament was written in, these are participles, they're not verbs. So they're action words, but they don't carry the weight of the primary action to make disciples. And the reason that that is important is because the heart of Jesus's words here are to make other people followers of him. Not like make in the way of force, but just do what you can to help others become followers of Jesus. And that's the heart of our mission as a church. This is why this passage is so important. Because when you look closely at this passage, it tells us how to do that. It says to go and baptize. So we say it this way around here. We are to win people to faith in Jesus Christ. 
We are to tell them about the gospel, tell them about the cure, offer it to them, and hopefully they'll accept Christ and become part of the team or the church. But then it says to teach them, Jesus says to teach them to observe all that I've commanded. So that's the build component. We're to win and then we're to build into people like we're doing right now by teaching the Bible and understanding the Bible and learning to confess sin and pray and and follow Jesus. But then implicit in this is that command to go again. So then we send each other out into our spheres of influence throughout the week to do what? To have an impact, to be winners and builders ourselves. So our mission as a church, based on these words of Jesus here, are very simple. Win, build, send. All toward the goal, don't ever forget this, of making disciples, simply helping people become followers of Jesus. That's the core of Jesus's words here. Now, that's the review part. You should have already known that if this is your home church. Once we get that, there's obviously a lot more going on in Jesus's words here. And so for our purposes today, as we talk about missions, I want us to focus on something that Jesus further says in verse 19, two words that are really easy to gloss over, two words that literally alter the way we see this command to make disciples. And they are the words, go to verse 19 here, all nations. Look at what Jesus says. He says, go therefore and make disciples, the operative action here, make disciples of what? All nations. I don't hear people talk too often about this idea of all nations when they talk about the Great Commission. And yet, we're going we're gonna to understand that today. I, I don't want to bore you today here at all. I don't think I'm a boring person. But I, I need to teach you a little bit of a Greek lesson right now that I think you're going to find interesting because it really matters to this text here and, and, and matters how we interpret this idea of all nations. Uh, the the two-word phrase, all nations, in the original Greek in the New Testament is the Greek phrase panta ta ethne. Really easy to understand. Panta is the Greek word for all. <laughs> ta is a definite article, which means the. And then ethne is the plural version of the Greek word ethnos, where we get our English word ethnicity from. And it's translated here, nations. So panta ta ethne, all the ethnicities or nations. That's the Greek phrase that's working here. And the reason that this is important for us to look at that phrase is that there's a small debate among Bible experts on exactly how this phrase, panta ta ethne, should be interpreted or here translated. You see, sometimes the Greek word ethnos can mean in the New Testament all people other than Jews. That's the way the New Testament writers would use it. So they might be saying about my friend Dave here, you know, that, that Dave, who's not Jewish, is part of the ethnos, meaning the Gentiles, anybody that's not Jewish. So ethnos, many times in the New Testament, can be translated Gentiles because the way the author uses it is referring to anybody that's just not Jewish, of a different ethnicity 
than the Jews were because the Jewish religion was so prominent, obviously, at the time of Jesus. And if that's what's going on here, if pontata ethne should mean all the Gentiles that were to take the gospel to all the Gentiles as one big group, then what Jesus is saying here, and I don't miss this, is that the mission is simply to reach as many peaceful people as possible, no matter where they might live, all people who just aren't Jewish or now in this case don't know Jesus, all the Gentiles. But you see, it's not that simple because this word ethnos, though it can mean Gentiles, can also mean, as it's translated here, nations. And you're saying, what's the difference? Well, the Gentiles are all one big group, anybody that's not Jewish in the entire world. But ethnos nations are clustered groups of people with their own distinct culture and language wherever they might be. So one's referring to one big group, the other is referring to a bunch of smaller groups, ethnos, different ethnicities uh, that exist around the world. So it's the difference between clustered people groups versus just everyone. And here's what we know, and that is that when ethne is mixed in with panta, the vast majority of the time it's referring to nations, not just all Gentiles. And that's why the New American Standard Bible, the New International Version, the King James Version, and the English Standard Version, all the big hitters, translate Pontata Ethne as all the nations or all nations. And folks, what I would submit to you, we'll, we'll now understand this in a way that you'll go, ah, I get it. I would submit to you that this is a very important distinction between all nations versus all people or all Gentiles. Because you see, when we understand Jesus here as referring to nations, he doesn't just mean all other people like he would if he said Gentiles. Though it does mean that, it will include all people. No, by nations, he means all other people as, as found in distinct people groups, clusters of people around the world with their own language, their own culture that are divided different than other people groups. And what this means is that the mission Jesus is giving us here is to share the good news, the cure, with every nation, tribe, tongue, and people on planet Earth, no matter where they might be found. And the reason, again, that this is so important for you and I in the 21st century living here in Phoenix, or wherever you might live, is that it's so easy for you and I to feel good about the mission when we only consider America or the United States. Because as we're going to see in a minute, we're one big people group here in America. Actually, demographers break us up into a few different people groups. But generally speaking, we all speak the same language. We all have a similar American culture. And as you're going to hear in a minute, we're the most churched group on planet Earth. There are 350,000 religious bodies in America. 319,000 Protestant churches alone. That's why you can go to a small town in the Midwest and the town will only be a thousand people and there'll be seven churches in this town. Because we got a lot of churches and we're exposed to the gospel. Even in our increasingly crazy culture, we're exposed to the gospel on a regular basis. So from our vantage point, if Jesus is simply say, saying, share the gospel with you know, anybody in the world where you find them, we can go, gosh, we're doing pretty good. We're living in a America. 
But if he's saying share the gospel with all nations and we're just one nation, then the question becomes, well, are there nations that have yet to hear? Are there nations that have yet to be exposed to the cure? If you and I were having a cup of coffee right now and you said to me, you know, how many people groups actually are there in the world, Jamie? I mean, not just volume of people, but how many different people groups are there? I'd say, I'm glad you asked. Let's take a look at that right now. I happen to have a slide here to help us. The amount of people groups in the world today, and you can find this stuff online yourself, just type in the Joshua Project into Google. The Joshua Project, they are the industry leader in helping us understand the world from this perspective. The amount of people groups with their own language and culture is 17,016 as of right now. So there's 17,000 different groups of people in the world out of over 7 billion that, that have their own culture, their own language, their own way of doing things. How many of them have not been exposed to the gospel in any stretch of the imagination? 7,000 of them. And you can do the math later, that's 41.6%. So there's a lot of people in the world, a lot of people groups who have never had the exposure to the cure, the gospel that you and I have, that they don't know anything about Jesus. Now, some of you are saying, well, I mean, those people groups could be very small, not a very big part of the population. So like when it comes to the overall population of the world, how many people have been exposed to the gospel? Well, uh, the Joshua Project, again, helps us with this. There's 7.6 billion people in the world and, and the population in these 7,000 unreached groups are 3.13 billion. So it's almost the same percentage of people that have not been exposed to the gospel. And some of you are saying right now, well, where are these groups? I mean, you just said America is not really one of them. This is the most cool thing I'm going to show you, at least being a biblical geek that I am. I, I love the map I'm about to show you because it's going to show you in living color what's going on around the world. So cactus, venue, and chapel, you're going to lose me for a second because I don't want you looking at me. And on your screen, you're going to see the big map and you're going to hear me talking over it, just like the guys at Shea here will be right now. So here's the map that I want you to look at. Uh, this map right now represents what's happening with the gospel around the world. Now, very quickly, you will notice on the far left side of that map where the United States is, Canada, and then South America, it, it's pretty much looking very green. Green is good here. Green means that there are established and significant churches that are getting the gospel out. Obviously, South America struggles a little bit more, so there's some yellow there where there's a nominal or forming church. But generally speaking, in the western half of the world, we've done a great job of establishing churches to get the gospel out. But now slip over to Africa. So in the center there, the northern half of Africa is almost completely unreached still to this day. There, there are, are thousands of people groups that have never heard about Jesus. And then you go into uh, the Middle East there to the right of Africa, and you go into India, and then over either, even into Asia, and it's still all red. We call this the 80-20 window, where there's a high population of people in which the gospel is not even on their radar 
And then I've been telling you guys this for a while. If you look in the uh, center top there, you see a mixture of green and yellow. That's Western Europe. It used to be the epicenter of the gospel. And now Western Europe is half yellow. Why? Because the church has gotten so weak there and culture has become so secular and decadent that the gospel is starting to wane. And then uh, the big yellow spots way at the top there right is where the old Soviet Union is. We're still working on that. And so go back to me right now. You, you, you can see Cactus Venue and Chapel, uh, that no matter how you slice it, guys, no matter how you slice it, 40% of the world has yet to hear, and then another 20 to 30% is in yellow. And this is after 2,000 years of wrestling with Jesus' command to go to all the nations. I don't share this to depress you. There's some good news in that map, but it also acts as a challenge of why you and I, living in this wonderfully blessed country, in this wonderfully blessed city, sitting in a nice chair here in church today, many of you having already done business with Jesus and, and received the gospel into your life, this is why you should care. Panta, ta, ethne, all the nations. That's where we're to make disciples and do our part. And so now and only now, are you ready for that very clear definition of missions that I want to give you that if you get asked tomorrow, Gil, what did you do on Sunday? And you say, instead of playing golf, I went to church. And that interested person says, oh, what'd you talk about at church? You can say missions. And then when they say, what is missions? You're going to say this. And that is that missions is planting churches where there are none. Is that simple enough for you? planting churches where there are none. And now based on your understanding of Matthew 28, your understanding from that map on what's going on in the world, you understand why this is such a profound definition of missions based on Jesus' word. Notice that we're talking about planting churches. Missions is not just evangelism. We're going to get to that in a minute here. One of the biggest misnomers that's existed in my generation about missions since I became a Christian 35, 40 years ago is that we just equate missions with evangelism. So anytime we do evangelism, we're doing missions. And anytime we hear about missions, they're just getting people saved. Don't get me wrong. Missions is about evangelism. There's an evangelistic component to it. But you learned earlier, and you now know better, that missions is about making disciples. That would have been a great spot for an amen. So let's take another run at it. <laughs> missions is about making disciples. And, and that's the name of the game. So what we're about doing is ensuring that whenever we start to go to a new area, we're not just sharing Jesus with them, though we're going to do that. We're going to start to establish a church so that the other aspects of what church does, we'll get to that in a minute here, the whole gamut of making disciples can happen in that culture. So, so don't ever forget this. Missions is planting churches. And then the second component, and you now know about this from the map, where there are none. And there's lots of places in the world where there are none. I, I want to be careful how I say this because I don't want to step on toes. I, I really, really don't. But I'm trying to give you a very precise, workable, understandable, and inspirational definition of missions here. Because we take this very seriously here at our church. You'll hear about that in just a second. 
And, 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 and I hear some people say, and again, I want to be careful here, you know, when they go down, say, to the inner city of, of Phoenix to do some service, say, at neighborhood missions, they go, I'm going down to do missions. I hope now you realize that technically speaking, you're not. Don't send me an email. I, I, I'm telling you, I, I know what you're doing and I'm going to validate what you're doing right now. You're going down to do some wonderful good in the name of Jesus. And you're going down to give a cup of cold water and to serve those in need. And it's wonderful and still do it. We have 20 ministries that we partner with here in Phoenix that we help you do that with. We are serious about doing that kind of stuff. It's just technically, <laughs> that's not missions. Why? Because you ain't planting a church where there are none. There's lots of churches in downtown Phoenix. What we're doing then is that we're coming alongside them and helping them as a people who have been blessed to be stronger and have more impact. And that's a very good thing to do. It's just that let's be clear in our language. We actually call that here, we have an entire department for that here at our church. We call that local outreach or local partnerships. And it's a wonderful thing to do. But notice that we don't technically call that missions. Because I take very seriously, and you should too, what Jesus gave us in the Great Commission. And that is that we are make, make disciples of all nations. And we are to plant churches where there are none. And so maybe now you can see why I ask you, Scottsdale Bible Church, to care about those who have never heard. It's so easy for us. I'm not, not down on you guys. I get it. I get it. I live in the world you do. But it's so easy for us to sit in our culture here today and, and, and just, you know, almost be dismissive about it, right? Like, yeah, yeah, yeah. I know there are people, you know, that have it worse than I do and, you know, don't have any hope and don't ever get the gospel and they're going to die in hopelessness. Think about what you just said. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's people like that. <laughs> and, and God says, would you care just a little bit? about that. Because here's the goal that Jesus has for us. And I don't mean just for us, but for all the churches in the world. And that's that when it comes to the Great Commission, what Jesus wants is a church for every people group and a gospel for every person. Amen? And that's what it's about. I, I mean, Jesus wants over in Rwanda <laughs> what we have here in America. Not necessarily socioeconomically, I mean, we're not looking for, you know, everything to be equal socioeconomically, but when it comes to the gospel, when it comes to the cure, uh, Jesus is very serious that he wants it to go to every tribe, every tongue, every nation, and that's a huge part of our job. And so we have a, a very robust missions ministry, I guess you could call it, though that sounds kind of weak here at our church we got a missions emphasis that has gone back 55 years that many of you who are new at our church need to know about. And at any given year, just about 30% of the money that you give to Scottsdale Bible Church makes its way to missions and local outreach. In other words, it doesn't affect us in this campus or at Cactus. Uh, we're very serious about funneling resources as best we can to that panta ta ethne, to try to get the word out to those that have yet to hear. That's why we have 50 missionary families. That's why at great expense, we bring them back to you this weekend. We do this about every three years so that you can meet them and start to interact with them. Even this thing, you know, when I, when I got this this week, I, just, I always cringe when we put out a full color brochure. Because in the church that I came from 11 years ago, this would have been an anathema. Because this costs a lot of dough to put these things out. 
And so Neil joked earlier about being a coffee table, you know, discussion piece. I mean, it almost could be that. I, I just hope, the reason I tell you that is I just hope that you don't like just, oh, glance at this or, you know, throw it in the bathroom reading rack or something like that. I, I, I hope you go home and really read this because the reason we put it together like this is, is in the hopes that you will use this and read it. Use it as a prayer platform. Use it as a, as a way to get to know <laughs> Ready for this? What's happening, Panta Ta Ethne, in the nations through Scottsdale Bible Church? We've even developed some values. Ethan, our missions pastor, wanted me to share these with you. I, I, these are so touching to me. We've developed some values for us as a church here. I'm going to put all three up on the board here right now uh, that, that drive our missions ministry that come right out of the Great Commission. Our values are reaching the unreached, equipping the global church, and then defending the vulnerable. And this should touch every one of us because obviously we want to reach the unreached. We want to win them to faith in Jesus Christ, give them the cure, the gospel. Uh, secondly, we want to equip the global church. We want to make disciples. We want to see strong churches develop in places where there are none. But then this one, boy, I'm so proud of this with our church. In order to win the right to build a church and to reach them, we want to go in there and help make their culture better by defending the vulnerable part vulnerable parts of their culture. And I'm so glad the church has finally woken up to this. It's exactly what the first century church did. It's exactly what Jesus taught us to do. I don't know if you've ever read it, but read maybe this week in your own time, Matthew chapter 25. It's a powerful little passage where Jesus tells a story about those who found somebody hungry and gave them food and found somebody thirsty and gave them drink found somebody naked and clothed them, found somebody sick and visited and helped them, found somebody who was a stranger and welcomed them, found somebody who was a prisoner and visited them. And Jesus says, when you do it to the least of these, you do it to who? To, he, to me, to him. And so this idea of defending the vulnerable is critical to our missions program. And here's the deal with that. This is really touching for me. I hope you guys can latch on to this. You know, when I came here 11 years ago, I'd been doing missions now for 20 years or so as a pastor, and I thought I knew it backwards and forwards, but it's only been in the last decade or two that the church has woken up to, to doing more to defend the vulnerable. And when I came here to Scott's the Bible, Daryl and Fred, who was our missions pastor, already caught this vision to defend the vulnerable. And we started a work then, as many of you know about, in, in Africa. Again, that, that, that red part of Africa that has yet to, to embrace the gospel. We started a work there to try to establish some missions there in Tanzania. And, and, and knowing that it was going to be a hard sell, we decided to go in and first defend the vulnerable. We decided to focus on education and water and food and, and, and gardens and, and work with the local pastors and saying, what can we do to help? And in 2008, I'd been here about one year, and it was actually a funny story. I, I was asked to, to go on a trip to Israel, you know, one of those guided tours. And uh, I said, yes, because I'd never been to Israel. And, uh, and, and Fred Beasley, our pastor, got really mad. And he said, why is Jamie going to go on a tour of Israel when he hadn't even gone to any of our missions projects? And it was a really good point. So I said, Fred, I'm going to give you 11 days and I'll go anywhere you want me to. And so in 2008, I kid you not, Fred had me on 10 different flights over 11 days. <laughs> and he was just going to pack in all that we were doing. And our very first stop 
was in Tanzania. Here's some pictures. Uh, the very first stop was in Tanzania, and, and I visited this classroom there. This is me, uh, by the way, uh, 10 years ago. Let's not talk about that. And, uh, and, <laughs> and I'm visiting this classroom here, and, and I'm watching all the classrooms that were going up and we're building. We now have two full-fledged schools in the village of Myroa and then Kondoa uh, from grades, kindergarten all the way up through sixth grade, just going on into higher eighth grade, just going on into high school. And then they took me to the garden, and this was the garden that they were planting there. This is our missionary on the ground there, God Save, who was back this week and his dear wife, and they were showing me what they were doing with the garden back then. And then they had me meet with the pastors, and so I met with four of the leading pastors in these cities, and we started to talk about you know, what more we could do as Scottsdale Bible Church in making disciples this, these villages that we went into were 87% Muslim when we went into them. And so it was a really hard sell. And yet, very quickly, because we went in defending the vulnerable, they, they embraced the work that we were doing as Scottsdale Bible Church. And the fruit that has come out of that in the last 15 years, and we could tell you story after story after story, this is just one example of what happens when a church gets serious, when it gets radical about saying, let's reach the unreached, let, let, let's make strong a church or even start a church there, and, and let's defend the vulnerable as we do that. It's called missions, and now you know what it is. It's planting churches where there are none. And when we get serious about doing that, as we have been, but if we want to continue to be strong that way, it truly makes a difference. So what am I asking of you? We've got less than two minutes left. What am I asking of you? As you go out here today and at Cactus, you are going to see the campus with a lot of different tables and tents set up. We've brought most of our missionaries back. And my encouragement to you, Neil joked about it earlier, that you don't need to eat some of the food you're going to eat at lunch. I thought it was kind of funny, though. I'm going to have a nice lunch. But anyways, I, I, my encouragement to you is to take some time today and, and stop by a table. Now watch this. Stop by a table that interests you. I mean, look for an area that maybe you don't know anything about or maybe an area that you've always had an interest in and stop and maybe grab some literature, maybe talk to the missionary, ask some questions. There's no such thing as a stupid question. They know that you don't know a lot maybe about that area or maybe you do know something about an area and you'd like to talk there. But let's interact with our missionaries. Let's learn something about an area, maybe take an interest. And then as you grab a little bit of literature there, would you begin praying for that area? Would you begin praying for that missionary? Maybe plop it on your fridge or put it on your desk, whatever you do to remind yourself to pray. And then lastly, I'd ask you to ask God what he would have you do. I long for a church. We have about 6,000 adults that come here every week, about 12,000 people on our, on our mailing list. I long for a church in which the vast majority of us, thousands strong, pick just one area that we're gonna help with, with getting the gospel to the nations. One area outside of our comfort level. And just ask God what he'd want you to do. I, I did, my area's not Tanzania, actually. I, I did this years ago when I first came here. I, I saw what was happening in Western Europe, and I asked the elders if I could personally be responsible for pioneering Scottsdale's involvement in Western Europe, because quite frankly, they are now actually considered a mission field because we are in the process of having to replant churches where there are none in certain parts of Europe because they are so secular. 
And I've spent the last eight or nine years developing some ministries there that many of our people are involved in. And so that's just an example of of what you have the freedom to do as well. We love your creativity. Pray and ask God what he would have you do. If every person just had one area, man, there'd be no stopping us. At the very least, we'd be doing our part. God loves you. He's blessed you beyond measure, many of you, and we know it. And we know that we need to also embrace his vision and become world Christians, not just local ones. Why don't you bow with me and let's pray. Father God, I thank you for all that you are doing in this church and in our lives. We're grateful for that. We're humble about it. And we pray you continue to, as I said to our missionaries Thursday night, Lord, would you continue to make us strong here locally so we can be strong for them globally. Lord, we we see that as part of our role in helping establish the church uh, across the globe. And God, I pray for each one of us here and at Cactus Campus and at the venue and at Chapel Next Door. I pray, God, that you would help us, uh, each individually, to know what you would have us do. I know we're busy. I know we got a lot on our plate, but this is serious stuff, Lord. This is your, your great commission to us, all nations. And help us, God, to do our part in making that work and making that strong. And so, God, speak to us. And our commitment back is that we will do, we will obey what you say to us because we love you and we want to be good followers of you. And we pray these things in Jesus' holy and precious name. And we all say together, amen. amen.